0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you these things i command you so that you will love one another this is the gospel of the lord praise to you lord christ you please be seated and david why don't you join me up here and Alyssa, can i get you to join us as well i'm so pleased this morning uh, to reintroduce you to David and Alyssa Williams. Uh, David, we've known each other for over a decade.
1: 14 years. 14.
0: Wow. We look really young though, don't we? We do. You especially Fresh look as young, daisies. yes. yes. <laughs> uh, David uh, was a, a member of Holy Trinity years back when he was on InterVarsity staff at NC State, working with graduate students and faculty. And uh, he went up to New York where he continued work with InterVarsity and was blessed richly to meet Alyssa, and they were married, and uh, since then they have moved to Oxford, England, where David is pursuing a PhD uh, at the University of Oxford, and where both David and Alyssa continue to work with InterVarsity in ministry to students there. David is a part-time member of InterVarsity staff, and Alyssa is a full-time member of InterVarsity staff and they have Charlie who's not here this morning. We thought it might be a little bit cruel to put him through two services Uh, but he is at home with David's parents this morning. It's a joy to have David here. Um, When he agreed to preach he didn't realize that he would be preaching on the covenant of circumcision. Um, That's what happens when old friends come to preach. They get handed uh, delightfully tricky passages but I would like to pray for him as he prepares to bring us God's word. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of fellowship and friendship and partnership in the gospel that extends uh, not just around the corner, but overseas as well. Thank you for David and Alyssa and their ministry. I pray now that as David ministers to us from your word, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would uh, challenge us, that you would bless and transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: All right. Well, good morning. It is so good to finally be back here with you at Holy Trinity Church. We haven't been here in this building, I don't think, since uh, August of 2019. Uh, Alyssa and I have so appreciated all of your prayers, your encouragement, your support, and for us and for our ministry over the years. So thank you. Uh, and it's a joy to get to share with you from God's word this morning, uh, even though I've got a tricky passage, as John said. Uh, so I've got some good news and some bad news for us this morning. The good news is, uh, or the bad news is that, as John said, uh, I'm preaching on Genesis 17, so I'm going to have to talk quite a bit about circumcision. Uh, the good news is that I did not bring PowerPoint slides. <laughs> All right, so let's pray. <laughs> Uh, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I want to begin by asking you, yes, you, a very personal question. What defines you? Is it your work? Your family? Is it your commitment to some cause? Is it your achievements? Your failures? If you've lived long enough, you will have witnessed how disorienting and destabilizing it can be to stake your identity on things that change. It's not necessarily that work or family or noble causes are bad things, or even that they are insignificant. It's just that they can turn on a dime. We lose a job, or we retire, or our marriages hit the rocks, or our kids stop calling, or the cause we've always supported runs aground or veers off the rails, and suddenly we don't know which way is up. We discover that our identity wasn't as securely anchored as we'd thought. And sometimes our problem is that we're afraid our identity is a little too stable. We worry that the mistakes that we've made will always define us, that we'll never live them down, that we'll never be able to change. Now we've just celebrated the sacrament of baptism, the church's rite of initiation and welcome into new life together in Christ. The rite of baptism declares in no uncertain terms the very good news that ultimately you are not defined by your successes or your failures, by your ethnicity or your pedigree, by your education or your social status or your occupation or any frangible, finite thing. No, in baptism you are claimed once and for all by God and united with Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection to new life. Baptism declares that your life is not your project. Your life is God's project. And your life is defined by his gracious purposes for you, to give you a future and a hope. And fittingly, today we continue our series uh, exploring the life of Abraham. I say fittingly because today, these little ones, Jay this morning, uh, and later this, this, uh, in the next service, Jack, Jacob and Jack, uh, have become part of Abraham's story. You might think of today's baptisms as being a sort of audience participation in the sermon. So thank you, Jay, uh, for your, your contribution. As the Apostle Paul put it in the third chapter of his letter to the Galatians, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Friends, if you are in Christ, then your life is defined from start to finish and from top to bottom by grace. God's patient, persistent pursuit of your heart. And the story of how God pursued you is a story that goes all the way back to his persistent, patient pursuit of Abraham and Sarah and his promise to bless all the families of the earth through them. A promise that is fulfilled every single time someone like Jay or Jacob or Jack or any of us is baptized into new life in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and as it happens, the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham. So, if you have your Bibles with you, or if you want to just grab one of the pew Bibles this morning, uh, please open them to Genesis chapter 17. Now, the alert and numerate reader will have already observed that Genesis chapter 17 is immediately preceded by Genesis 16. Are you following me? (laughs) Genesis 16 narrates, in effect, Abram and Sarai's failure um, uh, to trust the Lord to keep his promises and their attempt to take their, their destinies into their own hands. This was bad. The story of, his, of this episode repeatedly echoes the narrative of Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, a point that was very well made by Jason in his sermon last week. And if you haven't listened to that sermon already, I encourage you to go back and listen to it sometime this week. You see, the narrator of Genesis 16 tells us that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, which directly echoes Genesis chapter 3 when God chastised Adam because he listened to the voice of his wife Eve when he ate of the forbidden fruit. And just as Eve took of the forbidden trees fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate, so too Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived." The wording of both passages is the same, and that's very intentional. Together, these verbal allusions and echoes are designed to make the attentive reader feel, as Yogi Berra might say, like it's deja vu all over again. We're right back in the Garden of Eden, when humanity first broke faith with God, with disastrous consequences. And the not-so-subtle point of these allusions is to depict Abram and Sarai's failure to trust the Lord in this instance, to keep his promises, as being a calamity on a par with the fall of Adam and Eve. It is, in short, their lowest point, their worst moment, their deepest moral failing. And we are left to wonder what the consequences of this malfeasance might be. When Genesis 17, our passage for this morning begins, It has been 13 long years since all of this happened. Abram is 99 years old, as good as dead, as the Apostle Paul put it, an old man with a dying dream. Rather than having more progeny than the stars of the sky, as God had promised, Abram has one semi-legitimate son to his name. And rather than a family that is a blessing to all the families of the earth, he has a dysfunctional home, full of predictable tensions between his aging wife and his young uh, servant-turned-mistress. This, we can be sure, wasn't how Abram had imagined his life turning out when he left his homeland almost 25 years earlier. At this point, it's been 13 long years since Abram has heard from the Lord, the strange God, with all of his big promises. Perhaps you've known long silences like that. Perhaps you found yourself wondering, as we can guess, Abram was wondering at this point, where is God? Is he gone? Were those big promises just empty? Was the voice that made them just all in my head? Were all those dreams and visions just dreams and visions? Did they just make it all up? Or perhaps Abram and Sarai wonder if the Lord has given up on them, decided to reneg on his promises and to just call the whole thing off. Mercifully, in our passage, the Lord breaks his long silence and reappears to Abram. In a series of five rapid fire speeches, God reaffirms his steadfast covenantal commitment to Abram and his family, giving them a renewed hope, a new identity, and a new sign of his commitment to them. Together, these five speeches form what biblical scholars call a chiasm, with the first and the fifth speeches and the second and the fourth speeches forming pairs that mirror one another like bookends. And in the middle, the third speech stands alone as the centerpiece of the whole chapter. In the first and the last speeches, God reiterates and doubles down on his promises to Abram and gives them a renewed hope. In the second and the fourth speeches, God gives Abram and Sarai new names, Abraham and Sarah, and thereby gives them their new true identities. And in the central, third speech, God gives them an outward and visible sign of the covenant between the Lord and Abram's family, the rite of circumcision, a new permanent sign of his permanent commitment to them. So let's take each of these in turn. First, in his first and fifth speeches, the Lord gives them a renewed hope. The first thing God says to Abram in his first speech is this, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is the first time this name or title is used in all of scripture, but it recurs regularly uh, thereafter in moments like this one when the Lord is reiterating his incredible promises to Abram and his heirs to make them a nation of kings and priests, to make them a blessing to all the families of the earth, and to make them a people as numerous as the stars in the heavens. The name itself is a sort of rallying cry Identifying God who has made all of these incredible promises as being the God who can deliver on those promises. El Shaddai, God Almighty, is able to do what he says he's going to do, however impossible it may sound. And the promise that the Lord makes to Abram in this passage sounds pretty impossible. Abram and Sarai, who are both pushing 100 at this point, will have a biological son the old-fashioned way. And he, not Ishmael, will be the heir and bearer of God's covenant. Now on the face of it, that's crazy. And understandably, when Abram hears this promise, he falls on his face and he laughs out loud. He can't be serious, Abram thinks. For the Lord to do this, he would have to be more powerful than death itself he would have to be able to reverse the deadness of Sarah's womb and wind back both of their biological clocks. And that is precisely the point. The Lord of all creation calls into existence things that do not exist, and he will not be bound by anyone's biological clock, even if it stopped ticking entirely. The Lord hears Abram's laughter, and he says, Your wife will, in fact, bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. The name Isaac literally means he laughs. And it's not clear from the context exactly who he is. Who laughs? Abraham? Isaac? Maybe this is God Almighty's way of saying that he will get the last laugh by doing the seemingly impossible. And having made these unbelievable promises and identified himself as the God who can, can and will keep them, God Almighty offers the following unbelievably gracious invitation to Abraham. Walk before me and be blameless so that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Friends, today this same almighty, death-defying God has extended the same covenant to Jay and in the next service to Jacob and Jack in their baptisms. And he extends the same invitation to walk before him to each of us. As the Apostle Paul writes in the sixth chapter of his letter to the Romans, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised uh, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Second, in the second and fourth speeches, the Lord gives Abram and Sarai new names, Abraham and Sarah. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, says the Lord, but your name shall be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, which means princess. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. God renames Abram and Sarai, giving them names that proclaim just who it is that he has created and called them to be. In these speeches, the Lord in effect says, I have told you who I am, God Almighty. Now let me tell you who you really are. You will be fruitful, you are royalty. And through you, I will bless and renew the human race. You see, one of the most stunning features of God's speeches in this chapter is that, just like the narrative in Genesis chapter 16, these speeches are also peppered with allusions to and verbal echoes of the first chapters of Genesis. But this time, the echoes and allusions are to Genesis chapter 1. God's initial creation of humanity in his own image and his initial blessing and charging them to be fruitful and multiply and to wisely rule over his good and beautiful creation. It's deja vu all over again, again. But this time, the force of these biblical echoes is to hint that despite Abraham and Sarah's flaws and failures, God is committed to giving them and to giving all of humanity through them a fresh start. And with that new start, they are given new names, a new identity, and a new calling. In baptism too, we receive our true God-given identity and calling. Traditionally, for the better part of 2,000 years, the church signified this by officially naming children at their baptism. It's for this reason that people still sometimes use the word christening as a euphemism for naming. The tradition of naming children on the day of their baptisms goes back to the Jewish practice of naming baby boys on the day of their circumcision, on the eighth day of their lives. In fact, in Eastern Christianity, the ceremony of naming and baptizing infants has traditionally been held on the eighth day of a baby's life. And the roots of all these traditions lie here in this passage. Now the point of these ancient practices was to underscore the fact that who you really are is who you are declared to be in your baptism. You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to God's promise, participants in God's new creation in Christ Jesus. Finally, in his central third speech, the Lord gives Abraham's family a permanent sign of his promise to them. The sign was this, from then on every male in Abraham's household from eight days old on up was to be circumcised, having his foreskin removed. Circumcision is the great initiatory sacrament of the Old Covenant. And to this day, it is a marker of the Jewish people's identity. But Christians believe that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God both crucially fulfilled the promises of the Old Covenant and inaugurated a new covenant and a new era requiring a whole new set of symbols to celebrate what God has done. In the Old Covenant, the rite of initiation into God's people was the circumcision of boys and men, and the rite of membership in God's people was the Passover meal, both of which required the shedding of blood. For Christians, however, these rites have been replaced by the bloodless new covenant sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in fact, several of the Apostle Paul's letters are given to arguing that baptized non-Jewish followers of Jesus do not I repeat, do not need to get circumcised in order to be fully paid up, card-carrying members of the people of God. So, fellas, you can thank the Apostle Paul when you see him in heaven. No more blood need be shed. Christ has died once and for all. So, between the Old Covenant and the New, the signs of God's covenant have changed. But what about what they signify? as we come to a close, I want to quickly offer two observations about the medium of the rite of circumcision and the message to God's people of God's grace that is communicated through this rite. This message is for us today as well. For God's grace has not changed, even though the medium by which he communicates it has. So, two observations. First, circumcision is a permanent reminder of God's Permanent commitment to his people and his promises. A covenant is not a contract. It is a more firm and a more binding agreement than that. It comes with terms and conditions, but there are no escape clauses. Here, God is binding himself and Abraham's family, uh, to Abraham's family, permanently. It is an everlasting covenant designed to last through the generations You'll have noticed, too, that God instructs Abraham and his descendants to circumcise infants who are only eight days old. These little ones will be members of God's covenant people well before they understand what faithfulness to that covenant even means. And as it was with circumcision, so it is with baptism. This past December, our son Charlie uh, was baptized at St. Aldate's Church in Oxford. He was 18 months old at the time, and uh, during the ceremony, he started to drink the water out of the baptismal fault, scooping it up into his mouth, endearing him to everybody. (laughs) And clearly, he had very little sense of what was happening to him, or how to uh, behave, uh, (laughs) or what any of it meant. And so you might be wondering, if babies have no idea what baptism means, why do we baptize them? And the reason is because God's grace has not changed. God's grace to us not only preceded our faith, it precipitated our faith. God chose us before we chose him. In fact, he chose us before we even had the capacity to choose him. And both baptism and circumcision celebrate God's gracious choice of us in Christ Jesus. So to those of us who were baptized as teenagers and adults, the practice of baptizing infants reminds us of the fact that we are defined not by the strength or the consistency or the sophistication or the maturity of our faith, but by the object of our faith, God's permanent, gracious commitment to us in Christ Jesus. Second, circumcision is a physical symbol of a spiritual transformation. Remember that this mark served as a symbol of God's charge to his people to be fruitful and to multiply, and his promise that he would, in fact, make them so fruitful. It is, I think, in fact, a pruning image. It is the pruned vine that bears much fruit, and circumcision is a sign of the divine vine dresser's commitment to restore us to our original fruitfulness. But how? Circumcision is an outward, invisible sign of an inward spiritual grace. The books of Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel make it abundantly clear. These texts speak of Israel's need to have circumcised hearts to match their circumcised bodies. Hearts that would love, revere, honor, and obey God, and that would love their neighbors as themselves. These texts speak of the circumcision of the heart both as a work that his people are called to do and as a work that God promises that he will do in them and for them to bring about the fruit that he desires from them hearts after his own heart and again he does this by pruning them by teaching them sometimes with the tough love and sometimes with staggering gentleness the grace signified in circumcision is itself, if you will, surgical And the great physician is a skillful heart surgeon. He knows exactly what each of us needs. To be included in God's covenant is to go under the knife of God's redeeming love, a love that will not rest until it has cut away all that deadens us to the love of God and the love of neighbor. And once again, as with circumcision, so with baptism. Baptism is the sign that by God's grace, you have died to sin and you have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians, in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of our sinful nature, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead." With this rite of baptism comes the invitation for us to actively put off our old self with its sinful practices in order to walk in newness of life with God. And it also comes with the promise that in the ups and downs of life, God will be at work patiently pruning our hearts to make us fruitful vines for his kingdom. So friends, if you are a baptized follower of Jesus, this summer, whenever you take a shower, whenever you hop into the pool or into the ocean, whenever you wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds, I encourage you to remember your baptism and to give thanks for the fact that ultimately you are not defined by anything you have done or failed to do, but by God's grace. Take comfort in the fact that he is, in fact, at work in your heart, restoring you to the kind of life for which you were made. And take courage to walk before him in newness of life, confident of his unshakable covenant commitment to you. And if you are not yet a baptized follower of Jesus, God's invitation to that newness of life is offered to you too. Come on in, the water's great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new life that has been opened up to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for Abraham and for the ways in which you pursued him and Sarah despite their flaws and failures and through them and their lineage, and ultimately through Jesus, have pursued us. We pray that you would help us to have the courage to follow you and to walk in newness of life. And this we will do with God's help. Amen.